Full Service Radio is supported by Compass, the future of real estate in the metro D.C. area and beyond. Discover more at compass.com. Hi, everybody. I'm Kiko Bourne, and this is Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in D.C., Every Monday at noon, I spend lunch break learning about how people in D.C. and across the country are changing the food system. I believe food is worth more of our money, time, and energy than most of us devote to it in our day-to-day. Did you know, someone on my show made this stat or shared this stat a few weeks ago, that Americans spend 11% of their budgets on food compared to the French who spend 22%? Lunch Agenda aims to elevate the value of food by highlighting people and parts of the food system that don't often get covered in the news. You can see pictures of the show at KikoBuff on Instagram, and links we discussed during today's interview will be at KikosFoodNews.com. I describe this show as Full Service Radio's food activism show, and today we're going meta. We're really going to dig into the levers that move us to take action within the food system. My guest is Julia Tertian, a leader who has changed the way so many Americans consider our role in food activism. So... I guess I should actually strike what I just said about how this show is for people, is covering people who don't get covered in the news. Everyone's talking about Julia's work. I met Julia when she was touring um, the country and she was in D.C. um, on a cookbook tour. And since then, she's emerged as a convener of the leading food justice voices nationally. I'll be asking Julia about how she thinks about her her own activism and how she targets her impact. But as always, let's kick things off with a little Kiko's food news. Headline one for today. The Trump administration is planning to allow states to require drug testing for food stamp recipients, which comes as part of a broader push to limit federal food assistance. This may not fly since current federal rules prohibit states from imposing additional requirements on SNAP-eligible families, and previous attempts to do so have not fared well in the courts. But for able-bodied adults without dependents between 18 and 50 years old, there is talk of additional work requirements beyond those already required by SNAP. Headline two. Have you heard that Whole Foods, in the wake of their Amazon purchase, is transitioning their business operations from regionally based to centralized at its he- at headquarters in Austin, Texas? One negative effect of this may be for food entrepreneurs who fear that it will threaten Whole Foods' place as an incubator of groundbreaking brands since regional buyers will lose their power to bring in new items from local makers. The opposite side of that coin, though, is that with the new setup, food companies won't have to maintain relationships with every regional buyer to keep their products on the shelves in that territory. As it relates to the chain's struggles with profitability and ever-increasing competition, the centralization will help mitigate an over-proliferation of SKUs. Headline three. Remember our food news headline from last month about how Dr. Bronner's, Patagonia Food, and Rodale Institute have launched a new regenerative organic certification? Well, we're seeing it in action. It's exciting. With the recent launch by Annie's of bunny shell mac and cheese fame, 
of two products that are made with or, with ingredients sourced from regenerative agriculture farmers. Annie's is saying it's only the beginning of how the brand plans to build on its iconic organic values to restore degraded soil. Headline four, get this. Some are projecting that pot sales will exceed soda sales by 2030. The growth of the legal cannabis industry is eating into the market of other mind-altering substances. While soda may be eclipsed, the industry that's hearing real alarm bells is alcohol. Binge drinking rates have declined in states with legal weed compared with states that only allow medical marijuana and those prohibiting any kind of pot. I think that's pretty awesome, so stay tuned to that trend. Finally, one more plug for the annual Partnership for a Healthier America Summit that happens next week here in D.C. Spearheaded by the nutrition and fitness nonprofit started by Michelle Obama, the conference will bring together leaders from public, private, and nonprofit organizations, all committed to solving the childhood obesity crisis. I'll be there covering it for lunch agenda, so let me know if you're coming. Tickets are for sale at ahealthieramerica.org, and I'll have the link at Kiko's, or and I do have the link at kikosfoodnews.com. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'll have Julia Tertian here with us, so stay tuned. Today's break music by Keto, that's K-I-E-D-O on SoundCloud. We will be right back. Radio is supported by Compass. Discover Compass, America's first modern real estate company. By pairing the industry's top agents with technology, Compass delivers an incomparable client experience from the first-time buyer to the seasoned seller. Visit them today in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, or navigate compass.com day or night. Welcome back, everybody. This is Kiko. You're listening to Lunch Agenda. And today I am so thrilled to be joined via phone by Julia Tertian. Hey, Julia. Hey, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. I, the pleasure is absolutely mine. And <laughs> I can't wait for you to be back in D.C. But for now, I'm just grateful to have you on the phone lines and um, to kick off the week with you. Yeah, no, me too. And next time in person, for sure. Definitely. So let me introduce you formally. Julia Tertian <laughs> is the best-selling author of Feed the Resistance, which Eater named the best cookbook of 2017, and Small Victories, which was named one of the best cookbooks of 2016 by the New York Times and NPR. Plus, she's had, she has a new book coming out this fall, which we'll talk about later. Julia has co-authored numerous cookbooks. She hosted the first two seasons of Radio Cherry Bomb. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and many more. But beyond all that, I consider you a celebrity activist of the food movement. Um, I jumped on the Julia bandwagon after I was gifted a copy of Feed the Resistance, and it's just not like any other book. Um, as you've said, it's full of recipes, which are recipes for food and recipes for action. And the recipes are so accessible. You know, I, the, the recipes for food, I should say, to start with are so accessible, and I've made many of them, which says a lot given that there aren't any pictures, so you've really drawn us in through your words. I've made your red lentil soup. I've made your sweet potato simis muffins. 
Um, I recently made the Somali Sugo for a potluck I hosted after March for our, after the March for Our Lives protest in D.C. on March 24th. I'm curious, did you hear from a bunch of people, Julia, who cooked from the book at a community gathering around the March for Our Lives? Um, yeah, that's a great question. But first, I'll just thank you for that very generous <laughs> introduction. Of um, did I hear from people who cooked after March for Our Lives? Yes. And also from some who were cooking uh, before the march and, uh, you know, in other similar marches. Um, you know, I think so much about the book is showing us, you know, how food is a way to gather people together how we can make things we've never made before. We can learn about people whose, you know, life experiences differ from our own. Um, you know, when you made Hala's amazing Somali pasta sauce, you know, I think that's such a good example. Um, so, yeah, there were quite a few pictures on social media and stuff after the March for Our Lives of people getting together and, and cooking, um, specifically some of the recipes from the book, and that's definitely been a really, you know, cool thing to see. Yeah, and... More than just those recipes, which are really um, accessible, as I said, and I encourage our listeners to to give them a try, I see the book as a bridge for people who mm. have followed you for your recipes to walk alongside you into food activism. Um, you know, for people who come to the food movement, maybe because of their love for the pleasure side of food, the taste, the sensations of cooking. And, and are navigating where they fit into the issues side of food mm-hmm. and maybe less comfortable being there. Um, so actually, a couple of my favorite parts of the book were the two sections at the end. You had one section that was 10 ways to engage that aren't so obvious, and then one section, 10 things you can do in 10 minutes. And I just ate those up um, <laughs> You, you know, a couple I'll just share with, with the listeners. You said, some, you know, some of them had to do with food. Bring cookies or banana bread to the folks who work at the public library and thank them for their service. Bam. Like, I just, it's so personal and it's so doable and it's quick and it's, um, it's, it's just so human and it brings us together to, you know, environmental related things bring your own empty bottle to the airport to fill up after you go through security and use for your entire trip and then you offered a bunch of tips that didn't have to do with food take down outdated campaign material in public spaces that one kills my husband um so i hear about that one a lot or my actual favorite which was carve out some time to do what you already do for people who don't have access to your services so you mentioned if you're an accountant help teach people how to budget or prepare their taxes or for me it might be help someone with a communications plan or promotion or promoting a project um, so you just really offered so many great ideas about how we can each push forward justice around issues that range from reproductive rights to gender inclusivity. Um, so I thought before we get into heavy topics about our identity as activists and, you know, the, the in- incredible project you've actually launched since Feed the Resistance, I thought it'd be fun to brainstorm with you a way to unlock, unlock our inner activists through food. And I sure. kind of, I, I, I warned you that I'd ask you about this. So <laughs> I named this show Lunch Agenda because I believe in the power of making lunch count. I, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, each meal is a chance um, to mean something more than just consuming food. So I, I thought I might ask you how you think that we can all make lunch an activist act. How can we make an impact through lunch? 
Yeah, I love that idea, um, and I love the concept for your show, and I think it, it ties so well, um, you know, to the whole sort of feeling and kind of ethos of Feed the Resistance, which, you know, as you point out, as you, like, so accurately pointed out, I think, you know, describing the book as a bridge is so right, and I think, you know, food gives us opportunities kind of every day to be involved in our communities, um, to be involved that in ways that, you know, move our communities in more equitable directions. So, yeah, I'm so for the theme of your show. And right. in terms of a specific idea, I was thinking about it this morning um, and just this time of year and the kind of season we're going into. And I think one of the best things you can do kind of right now if you're on a lunch break or, you know, whenever is to sign up for a CSA. Um, mm. I think it's one of the easiest ways to support your local farmers. It also means you're going to be filling your, you know, refrigerator and pantry and counter with, you know, fresh, healthy food. And I thought about that idea and, you know, how can we take that a step further in terms of, um, you know, food sovereignty and, um, you know, which local farmers we're paying attention to and supporting. And, you know, I think it's an opportunity to seek out um, farmers of color, queer farmers. Um, I actually, you know, I don't live in D.C., but I know... um, probably most of your listeners do. So I was, I was looking around this morning and I was curious. I found two farms that sound awesome and I was wondering if you are familiar with them. Well, I was going to um, shoot out three-part Harmony Farm yeah, with Gail that Taylor. Was, that was the first one. Cool. She sounds incredible. Yeah, and I know she's got a CSA. <laughs> and she really intentionally sources items that she doesn't grow for the CSA from farms that are led by women and people of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, she sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. Sign Check. up for her CSA. Yeah. And the other one I found was the Five Seeds Farm, which is in Baltimore. No, tell me more. Um, I It looks like it's run by this really, like, great family. Um, and I think the kids are kind of involved. And, yeah, I believe it's in Baltimore. Um, but they have a CSA <clears throat> and maybe some drop-offs that are in the D.C. area. So that was my um, attempt to to pretend to be a local. I, I love it. I love it. Wear your local DC hat anytime, please. <laughs> um, and for any listener who doesn't um, follow what a CSA is, and you might have said this, but I'll just repeat it. It stands for oh, Community no, Supported Agriculture. And it's kind of what you think of as a farm box. It's you... as a consumer commit to buying a portion of a farmer's yield in the beginning of his or her growing season. And that way you're kind of entering into the risk with them and, and becoming part of their, um, part of their business in a way. And they can rely on your sales later on as they harvest. Um, I love that. Yeah. And it's just, it's a great way to sort of literally invest in that work. Um, and then you as a consumer, you know, get something great out of it too. And, you know, I know when I've um, been part of CSAs, it's just me as a home cook. It's helped me be sort of more creative because <laughs> you don't always know what you're going to get, which sure. is kind of fun. Um, but you always know it's going to be, you know, high quality produce, which, you know, is, I think the one thing everyone can eat <laughs> is good for all of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll just throw another, a couple other ideas into the mix in terms of making lunch count because I had some time to brainstorm with it too. My number one is just get away from the computer. Um, mm. I, I loved the rule that the Capital Area Food Bank had when I worked there, and I know they still do, about 
forbidding us from eating at our desks. And there it's a food safety issue. It's they don't want rats at this at this huge food distribution facility. But it just was the most amazing call to eat with coworkers, get to know coworkers. And there were a bunch of people who actually even started a a lunch walking club um, because, you know, you're away from your desk and just taking time to connect with people and breathe fresh air. Um, so I am very anti the hashtag not your average desk lunch. I'll just, I'll just <laughs> say. And, um, and I'm, I love that idea. So thank you. I hadn't really thought of the CSA direction. And now is the time. So three-part Harmony Farm, Five Seeds Farm. Those are two here. And I hopefully have listeners across the country. So look into, you know, take five minutes on your lunch break if you're listening right now. And um, look up, look up um, forward-thinking CSAs in your area. Um, so the book, Feed the Re- your book, Feed the Resistance, Julia, also offers a big microphone to amazing leaders of the food equity movement nationally, mm-hmm. some who have been doing this work for, you know, 10 years or decades. Uh, I was thrilled to see friends from my old San Francisco life in there. You have um, amazing leaders like Caleb of La Cocina and Shakira Simley, who was a former colleague when I was at Byright out there. And she now leads a community center serving San Francisco's Bayview, Bayview Hunters Point neighborhood. Did you know all of these leaders before or how did you meet all of these people? Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what what I love so much about Feed the Resistance and what makes me so um, proud of it and, you know, eager to get it into as many hands as possible is that it has over 20 just amazing people. Um, you know, this book is so not just about me, which is why I think it's so strong <laughs> um, and dynamic. And so in terms of gathering the contributors, um, it was it was a mixture of, of people I already knew, um, you know, sort of colleagues that had become friends, that kind of thing. Uh, also, one part, people I wanted to know better, <laughs> people whose work I admired and, uh, you know, wanted to work with and, and, you know, not only highlight them, but also just get to know more about them. And then I would say the last sort of handful of, of people in the mix were, um, you know, people other other folks referred me to. Um, so the sort of backstory with the book is that it happened incredibly quickly, um, which I'd be happy to tell you about if you'd like. Yeah. But in in the sort of quickness, <laughs> um, it meant that I was reaching out to a million people. Well, not a million, but a lot. <laughs> and, you know, not everyone could jump on board that fast. Um, so there was a lot of like, hey, I, I can't do this, but it sounds great. Why don't you reach out to so-and-so? So there was like a lot of that happening. Mm-hmm. So I very much feel that the book comes from a, a community and it was definitely built by a community. And sure. what was the rush? Was it, were you, were you trying to get it out right around the time of the women, the historic women's march last um, year? So basically mm-hmm. I um, was, I was on deadline to write a different book <laughs> um, and the you know most recent presidential election happened and I felt you know a whole bunch of things that I think lots of other people felt um, you know scared frustrated angry uh, et cetera et cetera and I felt really eager to um, you know do something sort of uh, positive and productive, um, something that would, you know, kind of add to the national conversation and hopefully lead people to action. Um, and I was thinking about what skills can I offer um, 
that can achieve that, and I, you know, I know how to put together a book. And so I emailed my editor again, who I was on deadline with for <laughs> a whole different thing. Um, and I had this, you know, idea, this sort of like vision for what the book could be. Mm-hmm. And it felt important to me that it it happened quickly. It felt like it was, you know, sort of born out of this very particular moment in time Um, and I wanted to respond to that and I also felt that the book itself could be a tool for um, for action Um, so namely for raising money to uh, support an organization that protects civil liberties so all the proceeds from the book um, go to the ACLU uh, which was you know after we uh, paid the contributors um, and paid, you know, all the fees associated with getting a book out there, so printing it and and distributing it. But then the rest goes to the ACLU. And so basically I was asking my editor to do a book, you know, she had never signed up for, <laughs> and to do it really fast, to agree to, you know, over 20 people, most of whom, if not all of whom, she hadn't worked with before, and also to not make any money on it, to give all the money away. Um and, you know, she said yes immediately. I think she totally got it and what it could be. And basically from that moment, that yes, until I handed it in, um, was a month. And during that month, it also meant, you know, getting all the contributors on board, getting all their material, um, you know, testing recipes, writing, all of that. And then we, so that was uh, the end of February of last year, Um and I think I handed it in in April, and then it came out in early October. You really so ripped whole, off that Band-Aid. Yeah, really fast. And <clears> and <throat> the, in the publishing world, that is, like, really, like, right. in the fast lane. <laughs> right. But memory has a way of forgetting the pain, and now you can just celebrate the 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 popularity of the book and the impact it's had. And I really like what you said about it's so not about me, that that absolutely comes through in all the work you've done, um, you know, over the past few years. And I think your work helps all of us hold a mirror up to our own work in the food movement. Um, I know it has for me, so I'd love to explore this this idea of identity, our sure, own identity yeah. as activists. Um, you know, I, I sometimes talk about how I love living in D.C. because everyone, it seems like I meet, is mission-driven. They're on some kind of mission, um, and I'm surrounded by activists. And it, it often feels natural for me to identify that way, but at other times I honestly feel like I'm overstating my impact or, you know, it, it's a it's a term that makes, you know, overstates my accomplishments. So how do you think about the term activist? Do you like to call yourself an activist, and have you always felt that way? Um, yeah, it's a great question. I, my friend Nicole Taylor, who's also a cookbook author, I, I once, I don't know, a year or two ago, I was having a really similar conversation with her, um, and she said something I've always remembered, which is, like, activists are too busy to, like, think about what to call them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she said it better than I just said it. Um, but I've always kind of kept that in mind, yeah. um, and basically with all labels in general. And I think, um, to me, the key part of the term activist um, is just the idea of action. And are you taking action? And is that action consistent? And yeah. you know, do you keep showing up? Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel... And, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no. That's, that's about it. I, yeah. I, I noticed that you just used the phrase getting involved throughout your book, and you do that 
it, it, that's almost a less, in, a, a less intimidating way of thinking about being an activist. Um, yeah. I think of it, honestly, um, in a really similar way within the food community, the, um, like the term chef versus cook. Mm-hmm. Um, and like a lot of people refer to me as a chef, and I always am like looking over my shoulder to see who they're talking to because <laughs> <laughs> I don't really consider myself one. Um, right. And, you know, I I really consider myself like a home cook. And, uh, you know, I have been paid to cook before. I've worked as a private chef, that kind of thing. But to me, I've just always understood chef to be the term you use for someone who, you know, works in a restaurant or runs a restaurant kitchen, um, which is not the work I do. But at the end of the day, I guess the other thing I always think about is um, my mom's favorite line of all time, which is, I don't care what you call me as long as you call me. (laughs) I guess all of, I'm sort of skirting around the issue, which is to say, I think the term activist um, is a term I uh, hold in high regard and absolutely um, sort of like revere and have respect for. And I don't um, always willingly, you know, assign that label to myself. Uh, But I, you know, I will absolutely, you know, accept it if someone wants to call me that, if it means we can, you know, talk about the kinds of things we're talking about now. So... That's that's really well said. Uh, and I, I just have to say, it's so cool that you paid all the contributors to your book, because as you say, you know, activists are too busy to think about what to call themselves. They're also <laughs> not getting paid for most mm-hmm. of the work they're doing. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a big statement. So <clears throat> yeah. um, I, I also just want to talk about, you know, the privilege that comes f- to this work from whoever we are um, as as an activist. So you know, I'm often cognizant of my privilege in in the work I do as a white woman who grew up in a family that didn't have to worry about putting food on the table. I would love to hear how you think about your own privilege and using your your point of view for the movement that you're part of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, my privilege affords me so much. <laughs> um, and kind of at this point in my work, I think I'm more aware of that than I've ever been. And I try to, you know, use that awareness to basically to do two things. One, to make sure I'm, I'm listening as much as I'm talking. Um, and hopefully I'm listening more than I'm talking. And two, to do whatever I can to... Um, to, you know, to spread that privilege around and to make sure other people, you know, have access to the same things I've had access to, to have the same, you know, opportunities or, uh, you know, connections or whatever it may be. Um, So I feel like I'm, you know, so aware of of the privilege I bring into the room, you know, into whatever room I walk in. I'm also aware of, um, you know, certain things that, you know, certain ways... I am, you know, not afforded privileges, you know, so whether that's being a woman or whether it's being, you know, openly gay or, you know, whatever it may be, and I try to use those experiences to just kind of inform my empathy. Um, And to lift up others who have those same experiences. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I basically think it's um, just, you know, it's about being mindful and thoughtful and also proactive, um, and yeah, I think it all just goes back to that mm-hmm. action. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I, and I, and very quick, very soon, I'm going to ask you about your new project, Equity at the Table, which sure, is yeah. fascinating. Just a couple other questions about you know this notion of activism are 
Do you think um, there's an, so activism is inherently social. That's kind of key to your thesis of the book. That's why food is the perfect way to kind of um, glue um, a group of activists together. And um, that just is clear to me every time I go out to march for a cause or, um, you know, try to galvanize people, you know, through my work at the food bank to, to support issues that the food bank is advocating for. Do you think there's anything, there's a negative side of that, that, you know, because it's social, people are maybe kind of joining in, but are less committed to a particular issue, Mm. um, that they feel like, you know, going to the potluck is enough, and then they're not going to actually engage with legislators or, you know, get get more deeply involved. Do you think that there's a slacktivism that we need to worry about? That's a great question. I think it sort of, it brings up a lot of things. I think one is that, you know, I think you're so right that um, so much about activism is social. And to that, I would add, you know, being social happens in different ways for for everyone. Um, You know, some people, uh, you know, are super comfortable going to like, you know, a big party. And so maybe that translates to being super comfortable to show up for, you know, a big march or an event with people you don't know or something Mm -hmm. like that. Some people are much better at, like, a one-on-one thing, so maybe a mentoring, you know, organization is a better fit for them. So I think understanding that that term means so many different things for different people, but all of the things under that umbrella, I think, are really useful, I think is is important to remember. Um, But in terms of that sort of, yeah, that term slacktivism, I think... It's, it's sort of twofold. I think if if that, you know, potluck that you're referring to brings people together and gives a sense of community and support, and that in turn helps, you know, fuel other actions, like, by all means, like, the potluck is great. <laughs> um, but I think if, you know, if what you're saying is if just showing up to the potluck, if that's not enough, I think this idea of, um, you know, that there are kind of minimums or, um, you know, you have to do at least this or not too much of that. I think I think it's hard because I think, you know, I think we all have to just figure out what um, what this work means for us. And I think there's also such a desire for, you know, for someone to just, you know, tell us what to do and how much to do and when to show up and what's mm-hmm. enough. And, um, you know, if those answers were readily available and, and that easy, I think, you know, a lot of this wouldn't really be a conversation. So I think... There's so much nuance we have to work through, um, but I think again the key is just working through that and not not feeling overwhelmed or um, you know kind of yeah intimidated by the amount of work because it's a ton of work. It'll you know it's it's work that's been going on for generations and will continue to. And I think it's just about all of us finding our role in it. Um, and, you know, whatever role we can sustain, and that role might change, you know, that can be part of how it is sustained. Right. <clears throat> I agree. Um, so speaking of kind of finding your own path, one of the 10 things you can do in less than 10 minutes that you offered in Feed the Resistance was, if you're making plans for a meal, choose a restaurant run by someone who doesn't look like you. And I remember reading that one and, and just finding it very powerful and Mm -hmm. that advice 
foreshadowed the project that you announced last month, I think, Equity at the Table. So you've described Equity at the Table as, and it is a website, as a practical and proactive response to the blatant gender and racial discrimination that plagues the food industry. So what you've created is a searchable database of activists, lawyers, authors, chefs, and other food industry professionals composed of women or gender non-conforming individuals, most of whom are people of color and in the LGBT community. So how's the launch been? Have you, how's it been and have you tweaked anything? since the site went public. Yeah. um, Yeah, it's been great. Uh, We launched, I believe it was April 4th, um, and it had been in the works for a few months. And um, I think the reception has been wonderful for both the people on the site, um, which grows every day. We started with about 100 members, and um, the last I checked, we were at nearly 400. Um, So it's, it's definitely growing. And, yeah, the response has been wonderful for both the people on it and I think also the people using it. And, yeah, just it's exactly what you described. It's a database. It's a, you know, it's a digital directory that's really easy to navigate. Um, And, uh, you know, for the people you mentioned, kind of in the food industry, which, again, is a huge umbrella (laughs) with so many industries underneath it. So everything from, you know, restaurant chefs to people who work on cookbooks in various capacities to farmers to people who make wine or beer, um, you know, whatever it might be. And then, you know, resources for all of those professionals. So the, you know, lawyers, uh, bookkeepers, publicists, et cetera. And um, it's been great. And I think one of the sort of nicest things I've I've heard in the kind of reception of it is just how many people are just kind of scrolling through it just and getting emotional, myself included, <laughs> just mm. to see that many faces um, that you don't often see, you know, across food media and the other, uh, you know, channels that sort of tell these stories. And I think it's powerful to see not just, you know, a few people show up here and there, but to see, you know, a real collective, like a community that's, you know, hundreds of members strong mm-hmm. um, that is doing all of this really amazing work. And, you know, and just to know that everyone has a story and, you know, a story that's, um, you know, worth knowing and worth telling and, and yeah, it's super powerful. And in terms of um, tweaking it, we have added since we've launched. Um, you know, it's it's a flexible thing. Uh, it lives on the internet. So yeah, you must be change. loving that as a as a book author. Oh, that you it's can actually totally change different. this yeah. one. It's, <clears throat> yeah, it's really kind of remarkable yeah. for me to you know have um, something kind of living and out there that we can kind of continue to update so easily. It is, that's such a good point. It's so different from the work I usually do. Right. Um, but yeah, so in terms of tweaking it, we've definitely added some new professions. Um, as as we've gone along, we've had some really interesting conversations with new members. And when I say we, um, you know, I did not uh, make this happen by myself. I have an incredible advisory board um, who I'm basically constantly in conversation with, and I have a really wonderful woman named Kate who who built the site. Who, you know, so much of the tech stuff is so over my head, <laughs> and I'm so happy that um, I have I have Kate to yeah do a lot <laughs> and really explain these things to me. It's been really really helpful. We and luddites been, need those around us. Yeah, it's been a real lesson in um, you know. I'm someone who who likes to work um, 
you know, I work on cookbooks and I, I, I do them in all different capacities. Um, you know, I do my own. Um, I, I work on other people's and uh, it's for the most part pretty kind of quiet, solitary work. You know, I do a lot of collaboration and, you know, I'll bring in a photographer or, you know, I'll work with other authors and that kind of stuff. But for the most part, it's, you know, me in front of my computer making this thing that I, you know, at this point really feel, you know, like I know how to make. I know what the steps are and equity at the table was so much like, oh, I have this idea, but I don't exactly know how to make it. Um, And kind of working together with a group of people to really make something, um, which, uh, you know, is the kind of work most people do all the time, (laughs) like working with other people to do something that's sort of bigger than you. Um, But it really opened my eyes to, you know, when you find kind of the right team, you know, what you're able to achieve together. Yeah, yeah. I know your advisors are so proud to be on on the train with you, um, at least the ones that I've spoken to. So what was your method in terms of how did you decide on the criteria for who would be included or not included in the directory? Sure, yeah. Um, so we basically, the whole site is, is open to women and non-binary individuals. And um, we have basically two sections of professions, and uh, which I sort of touched on. There's sort of the food professionals, the, you know, kind of quote-unquote creatives. So the, you know, the bakers, the farmers, the writers, the photographers. Um, and then there's resources for them, um, which I mentioned earlier, you know, like lawyers and accountants, mm-hmm. that kind of Thing. And basically within the, that uh, first category, the, the kind of professional slash kind of creative, at this point, um, equity at the table is open only to women and non-binary individuals who, who identify as people of color or um, as part of the queer community. And the resources are open to all women and non-binary individuals. And the kind of conversation uh, about that that, um, you know, we had as you know, the advisory board and everything um, was basically to use the site and to at least launch it as a way to kind of uplift essentially kind of the most marginalized of marginalized voices Mm. Um, and knowing that, uh, you know, gender and race and uh, sexuality aren't, you know, the only uh, things that lead to marginalization, um, but that's sort of what we chose to focus on to get the site off the ground. And uh, making the decision to have the resource section a little bit more open um, was a way to kind of invite other other people in the community uh, to be part of the community and to make themselves available to all of the food professionals. So uh, essentially, you know, like if you basically are, you know, a straight white woman who's a lawyer who does work with, um, you know, freelancers or chefs and, you know, listing yourself on equity at the table makes it really easy for, you know, those freelancers or those chefs or, you know, whoever it might be to find you um, and, you know, work together. And I personally, one of the lawyers I reached out to who specializes in um, trademarks and, you know, invited her to be part of the community that led to like a whole conversation about the site itself and you know, <laughs> should we be trademarking and that kind of thing. And um, so I've worked with her a bit on that. So the, you know, it's, it's a, it's a community that's definitely kind of finding each other uh, through the site and working together. And, you know, there's so many more stories like that. So it's not just a directory for other people to use. It's also very much a community for, you know, all of the members to, 
to be in touch with each other, to work with each other, yeah, um, to lift helpful. each other's stories up. I, I see that now. That's helpful to hear you explain it that way. I thought maybe it was just because there is there are less people um, working in those you know resources or um, you know jobs. You know the lawyers <laughs> and accountants. I'm actually planning to do a series on my show pretty soon about quote unquote food admin. These positions that you know you don't hear about people going into as much but um, are just so important for those who are the chefs and the writers and the, you know, the creative professionals, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, 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 it's helpful to hear you describe that. So <clears throat> in advocacy, you know, sometimes there's this, this parlance of allies and then those impacted. And it mm-hmm. seems like with this project, it, it occurred to me, you're kind of, you, Julia, are kind of both because as an ally, you're bolstering the opportunities for you know, various groups of marginalized women, but you're also impacted in the sense that you're, you're listed in the directory, you know, you qualify as, as, as fitting the, 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 um, the filter. So could someone play it? Could someone playing devil's advocate say that by virtue of your success, you almost disprove the need for the directory? Does that Mm. make sense? Um, yeah, I mean, and I, I know that. that you are not the average, you know, person who can use the directory. I just, I'm curious to hear what you would think about that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. I think, I mean, yeah, ideally there'd be no need for the site at all. Right. <laughs> um, right. I, you know, ideally, you know, food media would, there'd be more stories written about, um, more voices represented. There'd be more people in the positions of power that, you know, get to make those decisions, um, you know, that would already be happening. That would be happening in terms of, uh, you know, people who invest in, in chefs and who the investors are, you know, and on and on and on. So uh, I, I guess that's sort of like part one. Um, and I guess part sort of two of that is I think, um, you know, I think for myself and any other person listed on equity at the table, I think, uh, you know, the more sort of successful our our work is, um, the better it is for all of us. And the more we can then, you know, again, lift each other up, um, the more opportunities we have to hire each other, <laughs> um, to feature each other. Uh, you know, I think it, it, it serves us all. The more sort of, yeah, I think the more successful we are, the better it is for everyone. And I think we also, I recently wrote um, uh, basically kind of like an op-ed um, about kind of the cookbook industry and about representation. And I spoke with uh, with my friend and sort of fellow cookbook author, Samin Nostrat, who's, who's incredible for so many reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote the great, great, very best-selling book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And we had a really... Uh, like very open and honest conversation about essentially the like the code switching she did when she was in the process of selling her book mm-hmm. um, and even promoting it. And now that she has been so successful, um, you know, the quality of her work is so high and has been so well received. One of the effects of that is that she is now making space for other authors um, who have similar backgrounds as she does, for other authors who look like she does, um, you know, and perhaps, you know, her success will set a precedent, but will hopefully lead to, you know, a bit less of a need for code switching <laughs> for right. other authors. And, I believe it um, will. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think it's all connected. <clears throat> and I think so much about equity at the table is, 
is just providing a resource to show that we're all connected um, and that the more we're all doing, the more we can do for each other. And I, and I absolutely agree with you that, that highlighting successes amongst the group in, on the database is, is going to lay the groundwork for others to follow. If, if only I knew more amazing, smart women in food 15 years ago when I was graduating from college, my, my path might have looked different too. And, and yeah. so we need, mm-hmm. these, we need these role models, and thank you for being one. Um, oh, I am like, in horrible pain right now because I have 10 more questions I want to ask you. <laughs> But my, my time is up, and so I'm going to have to save them for hopefully future conversations. Yeah, in person. Yeah, in person. We'll and that. we haven't been able to talk about your Leftovers book, which is coming oh, out okay. soon, which it could not be closer to my heart as a topic. I'm so excited about that. So all I can say is that you are prolific. I hope our listeners now know about you know a couple books that they should definitely pick up if they haven't already, and um, just that everyone can follow you um, at on social media and read you know your contributions where is that op-ed I really want to read it I don't know how I missed um, it yeah sure I'll send it to you it's on Eater on Eater um, okay it actually the timing worked that it was the same week as Equity at the Table oh, um, how so convenient yeah, I'll send it to you. Thank and, you. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll share yeah, it. Um, so until next time, Julia, thank you so much for joining today. And um, and may this be the beginning of much more um, self-supporting each other through our work in food activism. And um, let me know what I can do to help. Have for a great sure. afternoon. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. See you next week on Lunch Agenda at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on Mixcloud.com slash Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at FullServiceRadio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.